Hey, everyone, and welcome to the first Big Questions Institute podcast. My name is Will Richardson, and today I'm here with Homa Tavangar and Eric Dozier, and we are picking up on a conversation that we started a day ago on racial diversity and racial literacy and had two great webinars with over 600 people that registered. And one of the things that we did at the registration point was we asked people, what questions are you really interested in about this particular topic? And we were kind of blown away by the fact that we had something like 22 pages worth of questions that came in through the form. I think it was over almost 200 questions that people were asking. And they were, a lot of them were really brilliant. And we tried to use some of the time at the end of the webinar yesterday to get to some of them, but we just didn't have any time. So we thought, why don't we just spend another 45 minutes or so just picking up on some of the questions that people were asking and want to know more about. So first of all, it's great to welcome both Homa and Eric to the podcast. Homa, of course, is my co-founder with the Big Questions Institute. And Eric and Homa founded the Oneness Lab. So we're all kind of somehow interrelated here. And Family. Or whatever yes. else, right? Yes. So this will be pretty this will be pretty informal. And uh, I'm just going to try to guide the conversation as much as possible. So we, we really wanted to start with the big, mega, overarching question. And this is something that a lot of people obviously ask in one way or another. But it is this big question, how do we bridge the racial divide in our schools? And that is a big one to start with. But what do you guys think? Mm -hmm. If there was one starting point for bridging that divide, what do you think it would be? Okay, big sigh here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Nothing like starting with the, you know, easy ones. Mm -hmm. um, so we did receive, you know, this like 22 pages of single spaced small font. We, we compiled <laughs> all these and it's like, that's the $10 million question. How do you bridge the racial divide? And I think in order to answer the question, we sort of need to step back and look at the landscape, the context mm -hmm. of where we are. And the reality is that this question feels more urgent than ever because the gap feels like it's growing. The equity challenge of privileged kids with plenty of room and great Wi-Fi and parents who have the leeway of time to support them versus majority maybe of public school students who don't have that privilege. Mm -hmm. And we are hearing more and more stories of kids that have to do school in their cars because they're seeking a Wi-Fi hotspot. And, you know, maybe meals are being delivered on a school bus and the school bus has Wi-Fi. And so it is a serious situation of distress. And what I'm really worried about with schools starting in the fall or late summer is that in addition, this issue is being now further ex exacerbated because privileged parents are hiring private tutors and they're creating these pods of students. And so those parents are sort of a classic case of impact versus intent. Their intent is, I want to do the best for my kid, which every parent everywhere in the world shares that priority, but their impact is that it's going to exacerbate inequity. Mm -hmm. So one step is that those parents 
those parents with privilege, oftentimes with a lot of education, need to become aware of the impact of their action. Mm -hmm. And just that simple awareness, that metacognition, which I talked about a lot yesterday, being aware of what you're doing, aware of what you're learning, aware of what you're about to do, can help make a difference to talk about the exacerbated equity because of my action, because I wanted to protect my kid, but I'm making things worse for other kids. Okay, now that I'm aware of the question, what do I do? So that's a really long-winded way of just saying, yeah. let's step back and think about what gets us here. So I'm the old white guy on this call, right? Um, full disclosure, <laughs> yes, you are. right? If, if no one's, you know, we're not seeing each other on this podcast. But so I saw that article today, that pod article about parents mm -hmm. kind of coming together and getting hiring a tutor for like $1,000 a week or whatever it was for four or five kids. And it took me a couple minutes and then I looked at it again and I thought, you know what, that's a problem. And so mm -hmm. at least I recognized it as a problem. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, a year ago or so, you know, that I would have kind of seen the privilege that, that kind of runs through that. So Eric, I'm wondering from you, mm -hmm. um, how do we begin to help people build that awareness? How do we kind of help people mm -hmm. develop that radar, let's say, so that when they look in the newspaper and they see an article like that, that might on its surface look kind of innocuous, mm -hmm. um, how do they get and see the real, the difficult narrative that's mm -hmm. underneath the headline? How do we help people develop that capacity? Hmm. Well, you know, it, it, I, I think by holding gatherings like we did these, uh, uh, like we did on yesterday, I think is one way. And we bring people in to uh, immerse themselves in a, in a discussion because I think that that is one of the biggest issues. I think that we, we are uh, oftentimes are interacting with theoretical versions of people. So we kind of see people in very, very broad strokes. We see them on the news or we hear or, uh, an article or, and, we, and, and otherwise there really is no intimacy or connection between people. Um, and it doesn't help that we have, it, we, we are all even, I would even venture to say globally, immersed in a uh a milieu that 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 really moves to separate us so that we can only see each other in broad strokes um and and which goes to the heart of building relationship bu building communities and and this is so much harder now because we we actually can't go to each other's community everything is kind of done virtually and, um, and, and, and so, you know, we do have a, we do have a, we do have a, a, a tremendous challenge in connecting people so that they can even see uh, that there are people that are disproportionately suffering because of this virus. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I know the situation that, that Homa is talking about, right? When the pandemic started, I was in Wilmington and me and my family were involved in our uh, race unity road trip tour. And uh, so when they shut the school that we were supposed to, to go to work in, you know, we ended up spending our last week 
in Wilmington doing just that, going to neighborhoods, delivering lunches while the school system was tr just trying to figure out how they were going to feed the kids that were on a free lunch program. Uh, and parents still had to go and, and work. Uh, so, uh, you know, what, what, what Homer was describing, like I've, I've witnessed it firsthand as these schools are trying to, okay, do we put lunches on the bus? Maybe we should put counselors on the bus to go check in on the, on the kids. They were finding out that a lot of the kids, like you said, did not have internet. And so now they're immersed, they're in an environment now where you can't do Zoom without an internet. Meaning that you can't go to school, you can't get an education, you can't do all of those things that you were just doing a week ago. Uh, and so now this has gone, gone on for three months, three, four months, almost four months. And, um, and so, but, but these inequities have a history. They're not new. These are things that have been cultivated. Uh, you know, just, uh, it's, it's part of our culture. And so just a growing awareness that, that, that that's what we're in, I think, you know, is a, is a good starting point. Um, uh, but it is a little bit more difficult to do that now with everybody kind of circling the wagons, so to speak. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges. You know, I, I think, though, it's interesting, as you say, you know, as we talk about how difficult it is and how we are not able to um, be in community with each other, I immediately think of the opposite of that, the counterpoint, mm -hmm. and yes. how people, you know, human beings are creative, we're a creative species. And yes. in these last few weeks, um, since the pandemic, there has been a proliferation of online community. And so mm. people say, oh, I'm Zoomed out. But they are really getting some incredible sustenance from each other. And some communities are exploding, positive communities. So I actually, earlier today, I, had a, I was on a call with um, Andrew Grant Thomas, who is um, co-founder of the organization Embrace Race. And that is a community of mostly parents who are getting together and exploring how to raise their kids and do better in a sense of anti-bias, anti-racist parenting. Their community is exploding. Um, there are so many opportunities to learn, to get to know each other. And so you may come from, and so another theme in these questions, um, in our hundreds of questions that we got was, I live in a very homogeneous community. We don't have a lot of diversity in my school. I wanna do better, but I don't know how. Well, the pandemic, is your, it's your opportunity. As we've been talking about in the Big Questions Institute, citing Arundhati Roy, the pandemic is our portal. This is our chance to walk through and do some, walk through the portal lightly, do something new, shed the carcass of our racist pattern of ideas. And so these burgeoning online communities that don't care where you live, don't care what, what neighborhood you're in, um, that I, I encourage people, you know, like Mr. Rogers says, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. 
they're out there. They want to live, they want to have a conversation with you. And um, the answer to all of this, I think what we found in our work at Oneness Lab is in relationship, building meaningful conversations, building relationship, getting out of a pattern of theoretical people. And um, that's how you bridge the empathy gap is by seeking human co human contact. Okay, I can't have human contact um, physically the old way, but like I'm communicating with both of you more than I ever would otherwise, and I feel such a burgeoning of ideas as a result. Um, so how can we find how can we find that contact? So in a way, we have to all become sort of seekers if we really care about this topic. So I also think, you know, kind of uh, piggybacking on something that Homer said is that, you know, I think that if, if we are involved in some of these more revolutionary conversations, um, we also, I, I feel like this is the time to invite people into those conversations that would not normally be there. So getting back to the example uh, that was brought up about the parents building these pods and different things like that, that initially could very possibly be very, very homogeneous. If there may be one person in that pod that's, that, that, that could say, oh, I know that there's a group of people that are you know, doing, doing this around this subject or different things like that, that could, that, you know, perhaps you can invite some of those pods into some of those larger spaces uh, for some more revolutionary conversation. And I think that, you know, when, when we see what's going on in the world, sometimes we do have a, have a tendency to, to move toward pessimism. But, I, uh, you know, as Homer said, like these organizations that have been working on these particular issues for a number of years, you know, for decades even, have gotten very, very efficient in how they work in this space. They've gotten better and they were already good, but they've gotten better and they've taken even their conference formats and things and put them online. Um, and, and so I would encourage all of the people that are, have been involved in this conversation, that person that you may think would not be interested in the conversation has probably been made a little bit more interested in the conversation because of the moment that we're in. So extend the invitation again and ask them to come in. You just never know. You never know. You would think too that as much as we're all kind of zoomed out, right? But that the technology is a real affordance in this conversation in terms of you know, bringing people from diverse backgrounds together in a shared space. Uh, it's, it's been striking, however, and I, you know, we've all been doing our hundreds of hours of Zoom sessions. I don't know about you, but the ones that I've been in have been predominantly, almost exclusively white. Um, there hasn't been a lot of diversity in those particular yeah. sessions. And mm -hmm. frankly, I wouldn't know how to create sessions that, you know, bring those types of people together in the technology. And since that's kind of where we're at right now. So do you have any, any kind of really specific ways of maybe creating space for people to interact and to engage in these conversations from their homes? Since a lot of people, that's where they're going to be when, when uh, they're going to engage. 
Well, I, I mean, I think the first step is the awareness of the, being intentional that, you know, I look at this room and it's there. I don't see diverse people here mm -hmm. and I need to do better at that. Mm -hmm. And I noticed um, in some of the offerings, Will, that you and I have done with Big Questions Institute, where we've been intentional about it, we have had a little bit more diverse engagement. Mm -hmm. And sure. yeah. I think part of the reason for that is that um, we're not only intentional about who is in the room, we're very intentional about our material, about the quality and the themes that we're sharing. So when we talk about change in school and innovation and purpose of education and reimagining education, equity is at the heart of that. And so people have to see themselves in that material. You know, another thing that we've been doing is pushing back on where the sources of our knowledge come from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we joke about it, but if it's all old white men, that's not acceptable. There is a lot more knowledge out there and so we have to interrogate our sources. Mm -hmm. And so that makes people, you know, I start to tune out. If, if, all the not, if all the sources are old white men, I don't see myself in that picture. I don't see that knowledge, including me. But when we have, we have started, especially congratulations, Will, I, you've really done a lot on this. <laughs> I'm going to say that. Um, I'm trying. You, you are. <laughs> and it's, it, yeah it shows and it makes a real difference. And, um, you know, this sort of courage, I think it takes a lot of courage, a lot that we're doing right now. It just takes a lot. It's, it's courage, it's humility, it's true learning, mm -hmm. you know? So I think when we center that equity discussion, like in everything we do, who was in the room, who is, who are we reading? Who's being included? People notice that you mm -hmm. can tell if it's sincere. Yeah. And also I think that, that, you know, when we, when we, when we're talking about race, particularly in equity, um, historically, you know, if you think about the civil rights movement and you look at, when you look at images of the civil rights movement, what you see is a movement that is portrayed as um, almost exclusively black right? When you see those images. And so, mm -hmm. um, uh, but there were, uh, like, I, I always like to characterize that movement is that even though the concerns of Black people were at the center of that movement, that was, um, a, a, it was a very multiracial, multicultural, and intergenerational movement. And a lot of times that is downplayed. But Dr. King actually talked about that quite a bit, and he called it the beloved community. And so, the, and, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, alliances. He talks about um, uh, uh, challenging his white brothers and sisters, his, the, his, his white uh, clergy colleagues in the clergy as well. And so when it comes to this work, we also get a very narrow picture of where white people fit in the, in the conversation. And I always use the example, and here's one for, for educators. I always use the example of John Brown. When I learned about John Brown in elementary school, you know, we learned that he stood up for the slaves and he had 
attacked Harper's Ferry, blah, blah, blah. But every picture I saw of John Brown was a wild white man looking over his shoulder like he had done something wrong and he was in overalls and it was kind of a really distorted caricature of him. Because I think a lot of times for white people to stand up uh, on behalf of black people and people that have been on the margins, uh, they're depicted as being crazy. Like that's not normal behavior for you to be like that. And, and so what we also have to begin to do is to grab uh, this other part of our, uh, our racial narrative and show how, you know, there has always been communities of people that have stood up for racial justice. And we have to normalize that behavior so that young white kids don't think it is abnormal for them to be standing up for black kids at their school. Like they should be taking on this work as just like, as, as a matter of course of being a human being. That's what you do. If you see a human being that's being, that's being hurt or discriminated against or marginalized or anything like that, it should be human to step in to help ensure that person is nurtured, encouraged, and safeguarded in that space. And so what, 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 but what we've done, particularly among um, uh, um, white kids and even white adults, is that, that uh, people look at that behavior as being abnormal. Well, that's, it's not, it shouldn't be abnormal. That should, that should, that's just what we do for each other if we begin to regard each other as a family. And so one of the ways that we can do that in the classroom is that we have to recapture that narrative. And there are uh, one scholar uh, uh, that, has, that has dealt with this is um, Richard Thomas, Dr. Richard Thomas out of the University of Michigan, uh, out of Michigan State University. Uh, with with um, with another one of his cohorts, William Smith, um, they call it the other tradition of American race relations. And so that tradition is actually a tradition of multiracial cooperation around this issue. Uh, and we can begin to recapture that narrative. And if we can recapture that narrative and people can begin to see their story uh, see themselves in the story of racial healing and recon reconciliation, then it becomes normalized and the behavior doesn't look like a surprise to us. So that would be, you know, a one way that we can do that as students. And particularly when, uh, if you want to talk about white women and their involvement in that, because most of the time, um, you know, when you, uh, you know, white women are taken out of a narrative or structured into it in a particular way, but you had, you, you, you had advocates, white women leading anti-lynching campaigns and being a part of those with black women. Um, and I'm not saying that there, there, there are not negative things here, but if we're going to be honest and truthful, truthfulness needs to sit at the heart of this, then we should tell the whole story so that young white kids don't grow up thinking that it's abnormal for them to stand up for racial justice. And you can do that in an all white space if, if that's the space that you're in, if you have the knowledge. 
I'm, I'm curious how you guys think about the way that this moment is being portrayed through social media, because one of the things that's been interesting for me is that I was I, I very intentionally of late have begun to follow people of color in Instagram, on Twitter. And I know it's not enough to just follow, right? You, you have to then engage and, and really think about the things that are coming through those particular feeds. But obviously, especially for kids, these, you know, right now, the technology is such an important tool for them in the ways that they see the world and interpret the world. What can we do in schools to help kids expand their networks and expand, you know, the ways that they think about these particular topics in a context in which they're very familiar, you know, in a context in which they live on a daily basis? I mean, is it just giving them some different people to follow? Is it to bring that into the conversation in the classroom? I mean, what do you think? Well, it's interesting to think about our students like from age 13 and up are on social media. Everybody's on something, whether it's <laughs> TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, those three probably more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what if your assignment was to be intentional about something you really cared about? And how, I think a lot of kids, they don't really know how to engage meaningfully. Right. They haven't had good examples right. of how to engage meaningfully. Wow. You know, there was this whole movement in the summer of posting a black box. And that meant I'm, I have solidarity. And, you know, I think that would be an amazing starting point to push back on because you've told me what you're not, but what are you? Tell me what you are. Mm -hmm. Articulate what you care about. Um, so, so much of the discussion is anti, anti-racism, anti-biased, mm -hmm. the black box. It comes from, I mean, we do need to talk about what anti-racism is, but we need, I, and this is the approach that we take in this conversation, is to uh, start from a point of strength, or not strength, but abundance, as opposed to deficit. So this conversation is usually framed in deficit. So we have a whole waterfall of questions like, how do I begin with elementary students? How do I begin the conversation? How do I get people to care? How do I get people to move beyond their privilege? Well, I think Eric partly answered that by saying, you know, look for those incredible stories that are so, you know, they're redeeming, they're positive, they're heroic, courageous. Um, they're not just, there are horrible stories, but usually in response to a horrible story, there was some, something amazing that might've mm -hmm. come out of it. So do we even, where do you even begin to look for those? So mm -hmm. I have seen though, like on social media, I will say that um, I sort of follow a fair amount of my own children's friends <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's a little bit of a bubble and my kids are 27 25 and 17 so I have a whole range of generation I don't know what is that x and y I don't know what that yeah um, yeah z and, z and whatever letter we're on right yeah, now yeah, yeah uh sorry I should know that but um so it's been it's kind of an interesting thing because I am actually getting a lot of my knowledge of what is happening um, around this discussion and like mm -hmm. tips and how to be a better, you know, 
ally. I'm not crazy about the word ally because I also think that sort of doesn't go far enough in terms of relationship, but um, there is some really rich content. Um, so, you know, I do like TikTok has an incredible thread of anti-racism on mm-hmm. the silliest social media platform ever, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that, uh, you know, folks are literally able to, I mean, I've seen people do amazing things. It's like an entire magazine on Instagram, you know, so, so you, you actually can uh, um, uh, get a very, very good start in those platforms. If, if you know what to look for and and what hashtags to follow Um, the, the, the thing that I, the thing that I, I like about watching uh, younger people deal with these platforms is how creative they are. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're very, very creative uh, in, in their approach to these things. Um, uh, and sometimes very funny the way they depict them. So, so when you're dealing with this whole thing of images, because images do impact <laughs> the way you, you see the world. Um, you have a lot of leeway to pull people into to 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 deeper to deeper discussion, but I think social media is essential. Like a lot of times when I work with young people, and uh, you know, because they they go into schools and the teachers are like, okay, everybody put your phone away, put it in the thing, or blah blah blah. I'm like, keep your phone out. We're about to do some <laughs> right. research together. Right. You know, yeah. like we're gonna use them. You you you're you're attached to it. Let's let's let me show you what you can really do on there. Uh, YouTube is also an incredible resource. Um, uh, I was just looking at something this morning, a uh, video on how cartoons teaches children to hate each other. So it's a history of racist cartoons from Disney and Warner Brothers and blah, blah, blah. All these things that we've grown up in. So this is how folks can learn how those things are not neutral that they were trying to tell you okay this is how black people are these are asians and these are muslims and these are arabs and these are you know but in the realm of childhood so we start to get these messages through the media so i think that it's quite um fortuitous for lack of a better word that now everyone actually can start to pump out these messages um, and also, Homer, you mentioned like everything kind of does uh, live in this realm of def- deficit. So it's anti this, anti that. M- my question always to people is, okay, so you're so you're trying to come combat anti blackness, but how are you proactively uh, sharing your love with black people? You know, like, how are you going to love black people? How are you going to love people that are, that find themselves on the margins of society? How are you going to show that love for them? And I think that that would, that could also be a revolutionary question for people to ask. It's not just how you're going to combat racism, but how are you going to love the people that have been suffering under the yoke of it for 400 years or so? No doubt. I think too, just um, just kind of going back to that 
question about kids and social media, you know, we could learn a lot from kids use of mm -hmm. social media. And I think that's another opportunity for us as educators is to just sit next to them and ask them, you know, how are you figuring this out? How are you connecting? You know, we, we've done a lot of work. We, we ask, always ask people what's sacred about schools. And people always say relationships are, you know, at the wow. top of the list, but they then go, but it's, you know, how do we do relationships in these types of environments? And I've started saying, go ask kids. Kids have really powerful relationships in these types of environments. They could probably teach us a lot about what that's oh. like. So a couple of minutes ago, Homa said, you know, she kind of struggled with the word ally a little bit. And at the end of the um, session yesterday, we had a question that came up about white fragility. And we had started into kind of this conversation about that particular phrase. And it's everywhere now. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, the book was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And everybody is uh, alluding to that term and, and all of that stuff. And, and Eric, in our conversation kind of <laughs> offline yesterday, yeah. you, you started voicing your kind of concern or pushback with that. And I, I'd love it if, if maybe you, you spent a little time just talking about what's the problem with that particular phrase um, that, yeah. maybe, that maybe we're just not talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, and me and Homa are, are very notorious for pushing back on a lot of these phrases that have come into the, DEI lexicon, um, uh, you know, I just kind of feel like once something kind of becomes uh, kind of the, uh, when, when, when something moves from revolution to, to, throw away, uh, easy, yeah, throw yeah, away yeah, when, yeah, when it, when it, when it moves from revolution to establishment, <laughs> then they're, microwavable you know, as we yeah, talk about, like yeah, microwavable. You know, yeah. And people, easy. people just kind of throw these terms out. And I, and I, I just think that it could be possibly harmful uh, for, for white folks to see themselves as fragile in this conversation. You know, I mean, because if we look at the data, we're looking at essentially a very, very small subset of the planet that has managed to move across the planet to have a pretty strong hold over politics, economics, science, uh, all across the world. That does not sound like a fragile group of people to me. It, it sounds like a, a, a actually a very smart group of people to me uh, and people that are able to innovate and to devise systems to maintain that level of control over the planet. So why do you get fragile when it comes to talking about race? Like bring some of that same ingenuity, some of that same creativity and, and, and zeal for scientific discovery to looking into this issue. So I think that it's, it's, it's to me, in my mind, um, you know, to paint people as, uh, uh, to paint human beings when, like Homer said, human beings are amazing. They are amazing. Like everything that we see around us came out of the mind of a human being, unless it's purely nature. Like it came out of the minds of human beings. That tells me that human beings are highly creative. They're highly resourceful. Um, and even if they may have fragile physical frames, there is something that we have been able to do to maintain ourselves uh, and keep ourselves alive on this planet. And so I think that that's what we should be drawing on uh, when, it, when it comes to um, 
uh, even when it comes to looking at race, because it just seems like when we start to talk about race, a lot of times the conversations just fall apart. And I think the reason why they fall apart is because we have, we, we've created this thing that one of my colleagues uh, and mentors used to call race theater. We jump in, we have the conversation, um, uh, you know, folks get to kind of sit back and wait to have the problem solved, uh, you know, while others are perceived as being angry or, you know, too boisterous and all these different things. And then we go home um, and nothing has ever happened. But I think that we should come to um, these conversations expecting that we're going to bring the same ingenuity that we take into the science lab or into the boardroom, and we're going to bring it to this issue. So I just, I just think that, you know, it, it, it could, it could kind of maybe damage the conversation if we, if, if, if white people's first kind of go-to is to be fragile. Yeah, and, and I think there's another side of that in addition to what Eric has described is the danger of, well, first of all, I want to back up. I really appreciate what Robin DiAngelo has done by naming things that people are seeing. And I think her contribution has been mm -hmm. really important at the same time, because it's also been very accessible. And so the accessibility is like a double-edged sword. So we use it as sort of like junk food, you know, consumer product or microwavable, <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. hop it in, it's gonna, you know, it's a quick fix and we're done. Just like this whole phenomenon of like joining a book club, joining a book club is fantastic, but if it's an end in itself, if you yeah. think you've done the work, like we talked about yesterday, you woke up, but are you ready? That mm -hmm. doesn't mean you, you're doing the work that's just helping inform you to do the work. So just being aware of, um, you know, not, and, and the other thing is not discounting um, other white people in the room as being fragile, and then we're creating more divisions. And so that, that's another question that came up over and over in that 22 page document mm -hmm. was um, how do we create, you know, like somebody said, this person is an all lives matter person and this person is a black lives matter person. There are so many ways we label ourselves and yeah. all of those divide us and all of those become barriers. And so fragile white person is one more, is one more label. And yeah, I hope I'm not one of those people, but um, it sure becomes harder to solve problems together. And we are in the midst of the most challenging moment in education, in living on the planet, wow, in wow. parenting, in d policy decision-making, in healthcare, in every field we can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so like, you know, we do better if we can solve the problem together. So yeah. I just think there is, there are so many pitfalls to falling back on that term. For those of you who are listening, um, just want to remind you that Homa and Eric will be doing a two-day workshop in August on the, uh, what is it, 17th and 18th of August, and you can get all the information about that at bigquestions.institute. We would love to have you uh, go much more deeply into this topic over two days and really get a chance to pull back the covers and, and get to some of the very difficult but important conversations around this. As we end this, as we kind of bring this to a close, 
I'm wondering what you guys think is going to be different this time, because, you know, we've had this kind of ebb and flow of this conversation over time. And there'll be moments when all of a sudden this becomes really centered in the ways that we see the world, but then it kind of falls away. And especially in this moment where, like Homa said, there's just so much happening right now that it's so multi-layered. And there are so many other things just around the corner that we don't really even have to talk about. But What's going to make this different in terms of sustaining this conversation and keeping it moving forward to the point where change really does happen in terms of racial justice and in terms of of equity and and all of those things that are so important for our kids right now? I'll, I'll take one stab at that. I think that when a conversation similar to like the Me Too movement, when it becomes you know, you hit sort of a tipping point in the number of people that are aligning themselves with that conversation and with that movement. I mean, yeah, maybe lawn signs is not a is not enough of a measure of change, but the places I'm seeing Black Lives Matter lawn signs that I would never mm-hmm. have seen before in these privileged communities, um, it's pretty remarkable. And I think that sheer global nature of this movement. So the fact that within hours of seeing George Floyd's murder on video, people took to the streets, you know, in Paris and Amsterdam and Cape Town and, you know, all Syria. over the world. And they painted those, huh? You said Syria, Syria. And Syria, well. they painted a mural on the one wall that remained in that neighborhood. We, we love that picture. Mm-hmm. Um, in Syria, you know, like, so all over, um, I think young people especially are owning this connection. And so it is not just an American issue. And we had a lot of questions from international school friends. And mm-hmm. clearly there are issues and problems of, colorism, of anti-blackness, of colonial mindsets, these are all connected. Mm -hmm. And the young people in the world are standing up and saying, that is not the world that I want to grow up in. Yes. And and they are making those global global connections. Uh, And and, uh, I I think that a lot of this stuff started also, you know, back when um, uh, uh, Trayvon Martin's life was taken. Uh, There was a young group in Florida that started called the Dream Defenders. And I remember watching these young people. Uh, They formed this group. They started uh, uh, their own summer trainings, uh, uh, teaching other young people about the discourse. They, They started revolutionary art classes. And then a few months after that, I think the young brother's name was Philip, uh, Agnew, I think was his, was his name. Uh, a, a few months after that, these young people are addressing the United Nations and then taking uh, multiracial groups of kids to work with youth in Israel and Palestine. This was probably in the span of one or two years, like I was watching these young people. Um, when Michael Brown happened, there were young people that had participated in the Arab Spring that were, um, uh, which by the way, started in Syria with a hip hop artist that was uh, familiar with black American hip hop. But what they were doing is they were treating, they were, they were tweeting 
to the young people in real time in, uh, in Ferguson about how to alleviate the effects of tear gas. There's your social media power. There, there, there's the social media, there's the creativity and the arts, and that's what we're seeing these young people do. To me, I think that's the difference, is that, the, the, that these young people are launching these movements and not only are they launching them, but they are building institutions around these movements to sustain the activity, uh, which, which has always been uh, something that, it, that has been much needed. Uh, and, I, and then I'm also seeing, uh, particularly as it relates to a lot of uh, uh, young people of color in these uh, social media spaces, is that they're not just looking at at it from the standpoint uh, of a socio-political issue, but they are also developing economic networks so that they can start to contribute and help sustain each other uh, with business, with education, all of these different things. So, so, so it's not just the protest and, uh, against something, but they are beginning to uh, grow their own institutions that are sustaining and that are nurturing for them. And I'm just trying to jump in there with them because I'm getting old and I want to be sustained. So I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. But I think that, that qualitatively to me, that's what seems to be the difference. They're not just appealing to the old institutions to get right. They are building their own institutions and saying, well, if y'all don't get right, the world is going to turn without you and this is where we want to go. It does feel different this time. It really does. And yeah. I think you're right. I think a lot of it is because of kids and, and, and the ways in which they are able to connect home. And I talk a lot about power, you know, and how power is kind of shifting in the world. And I think there are a lot of kids who are realizing that they do have great power. Greta Thunberg is another example, right, in mm -hmm. the climate conversation. So it does feel different. And, and uh, again, to folks who are listening, you know, these are the types of, of things that are going to be, uh, we're going to be talking about in that two-day workshop. And, and I, I really think this last part is so important because if educators don't know those stories, if educators don't have those contexts, I think it's really difficult to make these conversations happen at a, at a sustainable and at a relevant level in classrooms. And that's part of what that workshop that we're holding on the 17th and 18th of August is going to do. Just immerse the people, you know, immerse them and immerse ourselves in these types of conversations around what does the world look like right now and, and how, how can we very importantly sustain these conversations and move them forward. Homo, you want the last word? Well, I just wanted to say knowing those examples and, and I'll say, um, Eric is really active on Instagram. And so when I go to at Eric Dozier on Instagram, I <laughs> learn a lot. I see a ton of examples, just like I learn a lot from Will on Twitter. So the examples um, that you're sharing are really powerful and they give me hope for the coming school year having to do online or hybrid learning because all of these really powerful examples do not depend on being inside the walls of a school building. Right. That is where incredibly powerful learning, changing the world is happening. And mm -hmm. so that gives me a lot of hope. Yes.
Well, Homa, Eric, thanks so much for spending the last uh, 45 minutes or so with us today. Uh, great conversation. Maybe we'll do it again at some point because there's so much more to talk about and uh, we didn't get to nearly- We have uh, 21 and a half have, more really, pages. That's right. There you go. So we, we've got a few days Nine worth of, <laughs> of conversations <laughs> left. But anyway, really appreciate you. And uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone, for to the uh, inaugural episode of the Big Questions Institute podcast. Not really even sure where this is going to show up, but at some point in the next week, it'll be out there and, and uh, hopefully you can share it with your friends and uh, just spread the word about the work that Home and I are doing and Home and Eric are doing. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun for us right now, but it's also really, really important conversations that we're having. So thanks everyone. Enjoy, stay safe and stay sane and hopefully we'll see you next time.